Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Simply Amazing. Tim Ryder from the Apple Uh yeah, still in lockout mode, guys. This is uh, getting a little drawn out. I know last time we spoke, uh, the league and the Players Association had just met, and uh, everyone was very upset and offended at, at what was put on the table as far as the sides. Um, of course, you know, this all comes down to the owners giving up a, a fair slice of the pie and you know, it's fair business practices season. They might as well get in line. Uh, and the players, you know, it's going to come down to them standing strong and holding out for what they've earned. But uh, both sides are expected to meet again on Monday. Um, personally, I'm not expecting a deal, but I think any progress at this point is probably good. Spring training is around a month away. I believe pitchers and catchers report even less than that. So the clock is ticking. Uh, once that clock begins running out, well, we'll start to see if uh, if the league really wants to have a season in 2022. Because uh, again, this all this is all the, the league is the fulcrum point here. If the owners are willing to slice into their bottom lines to properly compensate not only the players as a whole, but young players, young major league ball players who contribute a ton to their respective ball clubs and a lot to the league as a, as a, as a whole, um, everyone deserves their fair slice. And you can go back and listen to the last episode. We kind of laid out what's out there as far as um, – what the, what the players want, and none of these, none of these, I don't even want to call them demands, but suggestions, none of them seem over the edge. None of them seem too 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 much to grasp, but the league is treating that way, and of course, um, their lackeys in the media are spinning it that way, and you know, it, it's a shame that it's going to come down to the league having to really take the hit on me. Excuse me. The players are going to end up taking the hit on this as far as public perception, because they, you know, this is a, this is a labor union type thing. You don't just give up ground willingly. You make concessions. If you're willing to make concessions and the other side is not, um, that should be the focal point. And the league is really not willing to make concessions. It appears that the players are. And on Monday, we'll, uh, you know, the players are expected to make a proposal to the league or a counter proposal, I should say. So we'll get to see uh, exactly what that entails. And I'm sure later in the week you'll hear from us again. And, and we'll have a little, um, I guess, a little reaction to it and, and where we are then. Again, I'm not expecting things to get ridiculously drawn out, but I'm also, I'm not counting it out altogether. It very uneasy times, but we'll, we'll, we'll learn, we'll, we'll know more soon and we'll discuss that next time. But, uh, let's move forward. The Mets announced their international signees this week. Um, a couple of high profile guys. I am not going to pretend to know anything about these players because one, 
we don't have a whole lot of information on them. We have some videos that are circulating. Um, you know, they're 16 year old kids. We don't know what they're going to turn into. We don't know. They're, they're, you know, they're being added to the organization based on potential, based on early talents. There's no way to gauge a 16 year old's future impact as a major league ball player. It's a lot of time before that uh, comes to fruition. But uh, I guess what stands out with me the most is how these teams have deals in place with 16-year-old kids on, on the low end. Most are 16, 17 years old. On the first day of the signing period, um, it's just such a crooked system. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to know exactly how that works. Ken Rosenthal and Maria Torres. Uh, Maria, of course, was a, a beat writer for the Angels and the Dodgers for a number of years. Uh, terrific baseball content. If you're not following, follow already. But um, Rosenthal and Maria Torres put together a, a almost an expose into the system, and, and it really, really harps on the the pitfalls of it as as a as a whole. And that's you know, of course. Unfortunately, it's way down on the priority list. The league has so many other pressing matters right now, including the lockout we just discussed. But um, reform is most certainly needed, and hopefully they'll they'll get to that one day. Uh, the Mets also had some news come out on Friday. Uh, most of these guys we already heard about, already reported and or announced, but the Mets have finalized their, uh, their coaching staff around Buck Showalter. I know we spoke briefly about Heyman's report that Glenn Sherlock was being hired as the bench coach. That has now been officially announced. Of course, Sher- Sherlock is a, uh, a longtime Buck Showalter disciple. <laughs> so Showalter hired him in Arizona in 1996. Um, he stuck around in Arizona for 19 seasons before coming over to the Mets, actually, in 2016 to be their third base coach. He replaced Tim Tuffle. Stuck around with the Mets until 2019. Went to Pittsburgh to be their run prevention and catching instruction coach. Uh, apparently made quite the impact there. I was reading a few stories from, I guess, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette that, you know, people were very upset that they were leaving. They, they, they thought that uh, Sherlock was quite an asset to the staff and, you know, hopefully brings the same to the Mets. So reuniting him with a uh, with Showalter should be a good thing. And I guess that also goes for Wayne Kirby. He was with uh, with Buck in Baltimore from 2011 to 2018. He'll be coaching first base. He was with Chase Tingler in San Diego in 2019 and 2021. So, you know, Buck knows what these guys bring to the table. Buck knows what they're going to bring to the advancement of his ball club. And I think that's kind of the bottom line. I mean, we were going to talk a little bit more about the coaching staff, but this all comes down to the players. We know that. The coaching staff is the coaching staff. Um, A lot of these, you know, a lot of the decisions that for 100 years were directly on the shoulders of the coaching staff and a lot of those responsibilities are now, you know, not even re-delegated, just spread out and kind of evenly tackled by the organization and front office as a whole. Um, There's a lot of input going into all these decisions and I think the coaching staff is just there to kind of make sure that these directives and and initiatives are being carried out um, seamlessly from the front office to the players. And, you know, I think that Buck knows where he stands as a manager. And I think that he's bringing in a coaching staff that will also kind of embrace that, uh, that responsibility to kind of be the, the messenger of uh, carry that message. I should say from 
you know, from the front office to the players and hopefully into uh, into action. You know, we talked about Eric Chavez coming over as the hitting coach, uh, Epler guy with the Yankees, with the Angels, very well respected, very much looking forward to that. Jeremy Hefner, he's not a new hire. He's the only incumbent left on the staff. And, you know, we know him. We know what he brings to the table. Very excited to see where he goes with uh, with his revamped staff. Joey Cora, we spoke about him. He's uh, very aggressive as a third base third base coach. Uh, got, you know, I don't want to say got him into trouble with the Pirates last year. We don't know if that was their plan, was to be aggressive, sending guys from home. But Pirates runners were caught out, were thrown out at home quite a bit. Um, one of the worst teams in the league uh, under Cora's direction at third. But again, with a different direction of uh, of coaching are just a different approach. Um, I, we might see a different type of Joey Cora at third. So who knows how that works out? Uh, Craig Bjornson. Craig Bjornson was named as the team's bullpen coach today. Don't know much about Craig Bjornson. Uh, he was a bullpen coach in Houston and Boston most recently. What stood out to me the most was our buddy Jacob Resnick over at SNY. He posted a, I guess his team photo from I want to say it's, yeah, it was from his Houston time. Look up on Jacob's page. You'll see it. And it's, you know, it's not quite Jared Hughes, but what an outstanding photo for a, uh, a bullpen coach, just making a, a silly, I couldn't even describe it. It's a silly face. Please go check it out and follow Jacob if you haven't, because I'm not the one to tell you about these international guys, but Jacob is. Jacob is, is all over the, uh, the minor side. And of course you remember him who's our co-host here and couldn't, suggest uh, following along more. The Mets also announced they have a new assistant hitting coach, and that would be a gentleman who was already in the organization, uh, Jeremy Barnes, who was uh, the Mets Director of Player Development Initiatives. Uh, He was a hitting coordinator in Houston for a few seasons before coming over to the Mets. You know, former 11th round pick of the Phillies in 2009. Uh, Utility infielder hit 265, 341, 395. Nice on base percentage uh, over four minor league seasons. Looks like he, his, at least his hit tool kind of maxed out at single A. He hit 281 there. Um, and then he moved, went over to Australia where he absolutely raked. Hit 329, 398, 499. And again, I, th- I believe this is just a guy, uh, kind of a guy who fits the mold of what the Mets are looking for. We were just talking about kind of relaying, uh, relaying that information from the from the analytics department to the players and giving it to them in a digestible way. You know, we've talked about the conduit process before and, you know, it's, um, it all, it's all kind of a testament to where this team is going. Um, you know, we talked about it at the Apple this week. I had a, just a little article about uh, Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom being on the same staff and kind of looking at, you know, Steve Cohen, Sandy Alderson and, uh, and Billy Epler. And, you know, they had a vision to, kind of leave no doubt in anyone's mind that this is the direction this organization is going. And, you know, they've kind of done all they, um, all they could this winter and over the last, you know, let's, let's say year, because, you know, the roster wasn't really being addressed, but the, the front office certainly was. They, I want to say, tripled their analytical department um, over the last 12 months at least. And, and, you know, Ben Zosmer, Ben Zosmer was in the news this week. Uh, the Mets promoted him to assistant general manager last month, I believe. Turns out that was for a reason. Uh, the Phillies 
wanted to interview Zosmer as their to, to be for their open assistant GM job, and uh, the Mets wouldn't have it. The tables have turned. So you know, the Brewers, of course, they um, kept David Stearns from hiring. Uh, from interviewing with the Mets a number of times. Uh, and, you know, this offseason it happened, I would say, at least half a dozen times where the Mets requested permission to interview somebody and their uh, current employing team denied that request and promoted them uh, internally. And the Mets are finally able to do it uh, do it from the other side of the table. So Ben Zosmer sticks around. Uh, again, a testament to kind of what's being built here. And, um, you know, I guess we're already starting to see – you know, of course, the major league roster has undergone quite the uh, the uh, undertaking as far as you know, just making it ready to actually compete. And now you look to the minors, and guys are starting to bubble up. I know Baseball America came out with their new um, rankings this week. Uh, Francisco Alvarez, number thirteen, he was number fourteen in the, in twenty twenty one. He's moved up to number thirteen this season one of the more highly regarded catching prospects in all of baseball. Uh, I posted it on my Twitter this week, I believe from his Instagram, which then got to SNY anyway. You know how Twitter goes. Shared a video of Alvarez taking batting practice cuts in an indoor cage. I have never seen such a violent swing. And, and it's not even like, and it's a controlled violent swing. It's, it's totally in control. He has... Bat speed like Gary Sheffield. I'm not. That's not. I'm not exaggerating. It looked like Gary Sheffield was swinging that bat. It was so quick. Um, yeah, uh, very excited for for Francisco Alvarez's future. Brett Beatty jumped up. Is that right? Jumped up from number fifty-two. I, I thought he jumped up fifty-two spots. <laughs> I got to read my own notes here. Jumped up from number fifty-two to thirty-nine. Of course, Brett Beatty. Uh, you know, just kept on progressing. Uh, it just tremendously last year. Went from Brooklyn to Double A Binghamton. Went to the Arizona Fall League, and really making his mark. He went from fifty-two to thirty-nine. Ronnie Mauricio. Ronnie Mauricio dropped 20 spots to number 92. Mark Vientos fell off the list altogether. But now this is where my critique of, of prospect rankings come into play. You could talk to anyone who knows organizational systems and they'll each one of them will give you a different list. I mean, there's always going to be consensus ones, consensus one through threes. Seeing Ronnie Mauricio, I know he fell out of a couple of internal, like I guess, Mets top 30 and top 10s, um, falling out of the top two, top three, down to the fifth. I don't agree with that whatsoever. And yeah, he's got a bit of, he's a bit of a free swinger. Um, but I think we've seen the type of, at least we saw last year in spring training when he was hitting against, um, you know, admirable competition. I believe on baseball reference, he was like a seven out of 10 as far as his spring training uh, opposing pitchers. But you know, this is a kid who's played, I think, an average of three and a half years below league average um, at every level he's played at. He's gone on, you know, absolutely ridiculous tears. You know, he has downtimes, and I think that's part of the whole cat and mouse adjustment that you see with even major leaguers until they know exactly who they are and are fully confident in their skills and know kind of how to fend off those uh, those attacks from pitchers, kind of changing it up, you know. Guys are going to have those ups and downs. And I think that Ronnie Mauricio, just the raw talent, is so extraordinarily through the roof 
that he's going to find his plane and he's going to take off. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, it's unfair that he's being ranked so low. It's someone's opinion. I have my opinion. They have their – everyone has their opinions. I'm just saying I'm very, very high on Ronnie Mauricio. I think that he will be an impact player at the major league level. And I'm also expecting um, an absolutely hellacious year from him on the uh, in 2022 in the minors. I think that he's now going to come out with a chip on his shoulder. I think that, if, you know, people are saying he's got no plate discipline – Maybe he puts an effort into into waiting for his pitch. Maybe the organization says, "Hey, we've got too much talent in this kid to let it go to waste with a as a free swinger." Let him. Let's uh, let's co- try to harness that talent. Let's try to focus it and 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 take it to the next level. That's what this is all about, right? But we shall see. That's all I got for right now. We're going to take a very quick break while I uh, we're going to be talking to Jay Jaffe. You guys know Jay. He's over at Fangraphs, uh, author, <clears throat> excuse me, author of the Cooperstown Casebook, uh, creator of the Jaws system, which of course is uh, featured on Baseball Reference. You guys have seen that around, and also a Baseball Writers of America Association Hall of Fame voter. So you know where this uh, this conversation will be headed. Hang tight. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, and welcome back. As promised, we're back with Fangraph senior writer, author of the Cooperstown Case Book, and Baseball Writers Association of America Hall of Fame voter, Jay Jaffe. Jay, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, thanks. Good to be back, Tim. It's, a, uh, I guess, the uh, peak of your, uh, of your season right now is the creator of Jaws, which, of course, focuses on Hall of Fame credentials, mostly focusing on the peak of players' uh, uh, players' careers. Um, you know, it all kind of converges for a, uh, a a holiday season of sorts for you. So I'm sure you're enjoying yourself. <laughs> yeah, it, well, you know, it's it's fun. It, it's fun that people uh, look to my you know, look for my input at this point. Um, I have enough uh, uh, enough different commitments that I actually have to uh, take take the time to jot them down and keep track of them. Where you know, as opposed to oh yes, there's that one thing next week. Um, so yeah, it gets, it gets a little confusing, but, uh, it's, it's fun to, you know, have my thoughts and, and, uh, uh, whatever be in my work, uh, be in demand. Are you a fan of the, 
I don't want to say the format that that voting has taken in recent years, but I guess, you know, the work that Ryan Thibodeau and his team has done um, to make this kind of a, a Hall of Fame season. Um, are you a fan of that? I know there have been some detractors and I know from a yeah. fan's perspective, it's, you know, it's cool. It's one of my favorite things of the offseason and how it's stretched into a two month process. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I. I don't know that we need two months of this. Um, <laughs> the hall, the hall, a few a few years ago, um, as recently as 2016, the announcement for, uh, for the results was on January 6th. Um, ever since 2017, uh, it's been pushed back about two to three weeks, and and I think that creates a lot of uh, um, you know a lot of extra time for people to get sick of the whole circus. Um, <laughs> You know, and and it has its pros and its cons. Um, it's the deadest spot on the baseball calendar. Um, there's just not a lot going on yet. Uh, you you know you got especially right now with a lockout. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think you know I actually spoke to Buster only about about uh, the you know he wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago that that obviously was widely circulated about uh, um, you know the draining of the suspense and the prolonged. Um, uh, you know, debates about about the you know the hall election and the process, and I think that there are a number of factors that sort of make it, um, you know, can make it a, a more uh, contentious and and uh, uh, you know maybe all encompassing and and oppressive than 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 it needs to be. But I think a lot of that is rooted in the particular candidacies. Um, right of you know of bonds and clemens and 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 shilling um and to a lesser extent you know Vizquel, uh as opposed to being about the process in general where you know there's no consensus on how to handle you know the peds or the character issues and and, and we're you know these these are noisy arguments and uh um you know i think they show that we care about these things um and we care about the hall of fame and we care about the direction it goes and you know, I think I think that's good. I think I think tra the transparency, uh, increased transparency and voter account accountability are good. Um, but it makes for, you know, a noisy conversation. And if you're not into it, it's it's a tough time of year. <laughs> oh, for, for I mean, for sure. It's you know, it's one thing when there's a when there's one lightning rod candidate on the ballot. And, you know, now you've got a handful of them and and then yeah. other, you know, whether it's you want to call them borderline or deserving but maybe not at first glance guys and you know there's a, a lot to discuss you know personally I, I i enjoy it i know there's a lot of um <laughs> i guess kind of rage that can go back and forth on on both sides but uh and i'm sure putting out the content and putting out your ballots for for a lot of writers is um you know, maybe a, a strenuous thing in itself because, you know, you're no one's going to say, oh, it's a perfect ballot. There's always going right. to be <laughs> some sort of uh, some sort of backlash. But, you know, it's um, it's exciting. Like you said, it's a it's a it's a really slow part of the offseason to begin with. And uh, it brings a little excitement. But I really did yeah. think your ballot was uh, was really spot on. I know we when you were on the show, this has to be, I don't know, a year ago, 18 months ago, we talked about Bobby Abreu and I was so mm. thrilled to see him back on your ballot. <laughs> yeah. You know, Abreu is a guy who, uh, you know, checks a lot of boxes for me. He's a little low in jaws, but um, he, he holds up well when you compare him to like a Vlad Guerrero who got in with 90% of the vote a few years ago. And, and uh, some of the other, you know, kind of, you know, quote unquote, no brainer hall of famers that are in even holds up reasonably well next to Tony Gwynn. Um, 
you know, and, and I'm pleased that, I, that the traffic has thinned out enough that I've been able to uh, uh, to keep him on my ballot. Um, you know, he's a long ways from election, but I think, you know, at least the voters are taking a longer look at, it, at him and not dismissing him out of hand. Um, you know, we'll see if we'll see if that builds into anything. Uh, at the very least, I think people, you know, should appreciate his career more. Uh, than they did uh, via, you know, based on the whatever three all-star appearances, I think it was, um, yeah. and the the power and speed combination that that he offered. Because man, that guy could hit. He was he was a pleasure to watch. He really was. And, and you know, I guess from a fan's sight, it's always, oh, was I watching a Hall of Famer? And I guess that's where I get a little hung up. But you look at his numbers, and it's like, oh man, this was just a just a what a terrific, well-rounded player. But um, let's go to the top of the list. I guess David Ortiz. Looks like he's very much on his way. If he doesn't get in this year, it'll. It looks like it's going to be very soon. Um, then you have your three who are kind of. I know it's Scott Rowland. Um, it took a little time for him to get a little momentum, but he's well on his way. He's pushing seventy percent. Helton and Wagner are two guys. I know we're going to talk about Bonds and Clemens in a second, but Helton mm-hmm. and Wagner—they're both on your ballot. Um, they're both uh, Helton's over it, but Wagner's close to approaching that that very important 50% mark. Uh, you know, the numbers are deserving. Do you, do you think these guys eventually get enough support? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think you look at you look at what what um, what Roland and Helton are doing, uh, you know, the, the, the major gains they've made. They're trending towards election. Roland, I think we're probably looking at next year. Helton, maybe a year behind him, maybe two years behind him. But I think, you know, once you get past that 50% mark, you know, it, it, I think as, is, is uh, uh, generally pretty inevitable if you don't have the, um, uh, the, the strong negatives about your case that, uh, um, you know, that, that Bonds and Clemens and Schilling do. Um, Wagner, uh, I worry, you know, that he might be running out of time. He's, you know, he's made some major gains, but he started from a very low spot. Um, he's at 48.6% right now, which is only two points higher than he had last year. Um, but he has picked up uh, gains uh, from returning voters. And, and so there may be, you know, he may be a little bit stronger than, than he looks just because of the different, uh, uh, different people casting their ballots reflected in the current percentage than, uh, uh, than a similar sample from last year. So, um, I, you know, I'm optimistic about him uh, getting into the Hall of Fame via one route or another. I don't know that it's guaranteed to be the writers because, like I said, he is in the seventh year of his candidacy. But um, so he could be a 10th year honoree or or maybe just a guy who slips to the error committee. Possibly. I saw that you included Joe Nathan. And I know, you know, going over the stats, when you put them side by side between him and Wagner and even, you know, put them up against Trevor Hoffman and they all shared a, an era together. Um, it's tough to not include Nathan. And I was really I was really intrigued by your uh, your inclusion of him. Yeah, you know, I, I've started using, I've, I've gotten away from using kind of a, the straight off the shelf jaws for relievers and, and looking more at uh, um, a, a version that includes win probability. And now more does include a, a leverage adjustment. Um, but uh, this is, uh, you know, I think a, a, a stronger, uh, you know, when you, when, you, when you put WPA and WPA LI in, in, into the mix, uh, what you see is something that I think helps to explain the strong support that Hoffman got because um, he's fifth all time in, in these, what I'll call an experimental version of Jaws called R-Jaws. 
um, as for reliever, not exactly uh, reinventing the wheel here. Um, Color but, me intrigued. I can't wait to see that thing in its final. Yeah, it's if you if you if you see if you see um, you know it's linked uh, in the Nathan. Uh, there's tables in the Nathan and Wagner and and uh, uh, Papelbon articles, um, and it's linked. It's now on Baseball Reference. It's and that's the default sort, um, but. Um, you know, I have Wagner as being the best reliever outside the Hall of Fame. I have Joe Nathan uh, a hair below uh, uh, a uh, uh, 30s, 20s and 30s reliever named Furbo Marbury, who did a lot of starting uh, pitching, and that kind of distorts his numbers a bit. Uh, but he's sort of an intriguing uh, old-time candidate uh, nonetheless. But uh, uh, Nathan's right below him and kind of on the same tier as Wagner. Um, I had to give his, his numbers uh, a lot of consideration and, and uh, ultimately I, you know, especially mindful of where he is electorally, that this is a guy who my vote may make or break, you know, that him getting 5%, I, you know, I had to, I, I, I felt compelled to include him right now. He's, he, I had there are only three other people who voted for him. He's at 2.3%. He may not make it. You know, I'll be disappointed if that's the case, because I think he, at the very least, deserves uh, a longer look from the electorate. And you know, likewise, I, I think that's true for Jonathan Papelbon as well, who I wrote about yesterday. And, you know, Papelbon's a bit of a character and kind of weary. There was a reason I, <laughs> I left until the last candidate on my, uh, on my list. But at the same time, the guy had a really strong decade as a, as a closer um, and uh, put up some strong numbers that, that, uh, uh, place him in the top 10 in that, in that stat. So, um, you know, I wouldn't mind if he got the longer look as well, the same courtesy, but right now he's got exactly one vote uh, from the 175 in a tracker. So uh, that seems even less likely than, than, <laughs> than Nathan, um, you know, and, and maybe these guys will look different. Uh, their candidacies will look different in 10 years. If we see how hard it is for guys like Craig Kimbrell and Kenley Jansen, uh, and a role this Chapman to sustain what they've started because um, they're kind of the next the next wave of guys, and I don't know that they'll necessarily surpass Wagner and and uh, uh, Nathan and and even Papelbon. Yeah, no, and it's it the, the reliever is just such a volatile spot, and when you see that sort of consistency, it's you almost have to take notice, and then once you see that the elite production with the consistency, it, it sets guys apart. And yeah, I'm with you. I hope yeah. that Nathan gets a, gets his fair shake. Now, the dynamic of the next group of guys I'm going to talk about, it's kind of like, a, um, it's almost like a little waterfall. So we spoke about Ortiz. He's leading the way. His, um, let's say, it, an alleged positive test, which everyone thinks is, is, a, is a solid source of information, was in 2003. It was anonymous, of course, and it was before the league implemented their rules. It looks like voters have kindly reflected on that and um, especially this scenario and like guess the uniqueness of itself. Of course, Bonds and Clemens last year on the ballot, they're both at, you know, just above 75 percent. But as more ballots come in, that could very well change. It's a discussion in itself. But you look at guys like A-Rod and Manny Ramirez, who were both popped for PEDs well after MLB had implemented rules. Manny's at 37% and change. A-Rod is just over 40%. Do you feel that the timing of these positive tests, or, or in Ortiz's case, an alleged positive test, I mean, well, Clemens and Bonds, you know, uh, nothing truly concrete, but a whole lot of speculation. I guess maybe in Clemens' case, a little bit tougher. Again, different conversation. 
Do you think that those lines kind of get blurred as time goes on or for specifically no. in time for Ramirez and A-Rod? It depends. I mean, it depends who you're asking. I mean, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no consent, you know, strong consensus within the electorate that uh, um, there's no one size fits all here because these guys all have kind of different cases. Um, you know, my line is that anything that happened before, um, you know, testing and, and penalties were in place, which, which is to say starting in 2004 uh, belongs in one category and everything that happened from 2004 onward as a second category. Now, I think, you know, I think we can go beyond um, saying that there's speculation about Bonds and Clemens. There's a, there's a lot of evidence that these guys oh, used, yeah. um, you know, and, and it's just that, that when they were using, uh, Major League Baseball did not have a penalty uh, uh, in place. And, you know, what we had instead was a complete institutional failure that uh, uh, involved the commissioner, the owners, the players union, um, Oh my goodness! <laughs> their, their their peers, uh, the media, and you know, and even the fans who kept cheering. I mean, look, the BBWAA uh, gave Barry Bonds seven MVP awards, and some of those came after um, it was revealed that he was part of the Balco uh, uh, yeah. sweep. So, sure. you know, it's <laughs> and, I mean, it's it, it's kind of crazy. And and uh, I guess um, I should I should have said a lack of positive tests. There was plenty. Yeah, of it's, you know, and, and there's so there's there's. Um, you know, and, and meanwhile, on the other side of it, you've got, you know, Manny Ramirez and Alex Rodriguez, who not only were, um, you know, uh, reported as testing positive in the survey tests, uh, but also later got popped, you know, Ramirez twice, A-Rod once um, for, you know, for uh, for violations of the drug policy. Um, you know, I'm, I, I left both of those guys off of my ballot on that basis, whereas I included Bonds and Clemens, uh, you know, on my ballot. Ortiz. It's the survey test. So again, I, I don't hold that against him. Um, there was some interesting stuff said by Rob Manfred, uh, essentially waving off uh, the value of the survey test uh, and that report. It's seemed like it was specific to Ortiz when he said it, but I think it should be taken more generally that we sh- that that shouldn't be, you know, a, something that that is a, that is a deal breaker unto itself. And I don't think we've really seen it used. Uh, as that, except for Sammy Sosa, um, you know, because it sort of fits into this, you know, stereotype and whatever that you, um, you know, presumption of, of, of guilt on Sammy's part that's, you know, based on his body type and, you know, not unreasonably so given, <laughs> given, uh, given what we've seen from others who are, who are, have, you know, who have been, uh, um, you know, more concretely identified as, as, as PED users. So, um, there, I don't think there's a blanket, you know, there's no blanket solution there um, for voters. And, and I think they've voted, you know, to some degree, they've all been evaluated uh, based on the nuances of their of, of their cases. And, yeah. and that's why Bonds and Clemens are closer to election and why Ortiz is probably going to get in, if not this year, the next year. Um, and why Manny is particularly hosed. And I think, you know, A-Rod's probably hosed, too. Now, I want to ask you about two guys who did make your ballot and uh, who have gotten a lot of support, um, uh, I guess, additional support in recent years. Andrew Jones and Gary Sheffield. Gary Sheffield, I think, at least personally, I think he kind of gets caught up in the era. Um, of course, he made your ballot, and I'm very curious to, to hear your your reasoning. Of course, it was in your Fangraphs piece, but um, sure. for, for the listeners, it, it's it's... <sighs> 
it, I think it's a shame how some guys get overshadowed because of the timing of their careers. And, uh, you know, Andrew Jones, yeah, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I want to. No, I was going to say, I mean, Sheffield was, there's no doubt Gary Sheffield was an elite hitter. Um, yeah. His defensive numbers knock him down uh, significantly in, in, uh, in war and jaws. It's fair to wonder the extent to which those are, um, you know, there's such outliers that it's, that, that, that it's almost seems hyperbolic, um, you know, and I, and the fact that he didn't have the DH slot available to him for, for most of his career, I think, you know, I think we could be a little bit more charitable. I think we could also understand how badly the Brewers mistreated him and, um, during the outset of his career. And, yeah. you know, I think that, uh, um, this is a guy who was clearly an elite hitter. Um, and, you know, again, he was, he was uh, named in the Balco case. Um, his explanation actually seemed kind of plausible that uh, uh, he didn't know what he was taking. And as soon as he found out uh, that it was, that it was a PED, um, he stopped working out with bonds. Um, you know, I, that's, I mean, this is Tom Verducci's reporting, not mine here. So, you know, yeah. and, and Verducci's, Verducci's generally pretty hard line about that stuff, but seemed pretty forgiving when he wrote about uh, Sheffield. Likewise, the, um, the, uh, the story about uh, the intentional errors uh, seems to be rather apocryphal. Um, I've researched it. Verducci researched it. Um, if it happened, it happened in the minor leagues. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of hyperbole there. Um you know, I like I. He was one of my favorite players to watch hit, and uh, you know, he's he's. Uh, I, I I found room for him on my ballot. He wasn't a slam dunk, but he was a guy that was like, oh, okay, I have room here. I can do this. I'd rather do this than, you know, Sammy Sosa at this point. Yeah. Um, be, because I think there's he's he's actually legitimately got a chance, and we've seen his uh, his share grow. Um, Andrew Jones uh, rates as the best center fielder of all time by Baseball Reference's uh, version of WAR. Um, a bit ahead of, of Willie Mays. Um, that blows my mind. Maybe, Every time I hear yeah, it, there, it, blows my mind. Well, yeah, there's maybe some gray area in there. Chris Dial, who, who has uh, a defensive system that uh, is used in the, in the gold gloves voting called red, um, mm-hmm. points out that there are, some of this is some of uh, Jones's numbers may be uh, inflated a bit by, you know, this, the so-called discretionary fielding plays, the ones that, you know, either he or the left fielder could have gotten it, um, but uh, um, he took all those chances uh, away from away from his his uh, neighbors. And that's something you see in fielding stats anyway. Um, but it may have distorted his numbers a bit. I don't know. I still have him as the uh, I think uh, uh, in the top dozen in Jaws. A very high peak. Yes, he you know his career faded out early, but even with that, his peak is well above Hall standard. And you know somebody had to. You know, when you th- when you think about the fact that um, Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and John Smoltz are all in the Hall of Fame, uh, and that of those three, only Smoltz was really a strikeout pitcher, you know, Andrew Jones was the key defender for the Braves dynasty. Um, those runs went to die somewhere, uh, and a lot of them went to die in Andrew Jones's glove. And so, you know, I think he's rightly being recognized as as uh, uh, as a hall worthy candidate, we're seeing him. He was, uh, uh, he was in the single digits for the first couple of years. And now he's, he's pushing almost 50% here, uh, in the, in the, uh, uh published ballot so far. I love that. I, I love that about today's 
the, the process of today. It's it's if a guy catches momentum with the public now and it, now it's actually visible, it's not just, you know, newspapers and word of mouth amongst fans. The guy catches becomes viral. Maybe you should say it. Let's look at a Wagner. Let's look at a, you know, at Andrew Jones and boom, they just, you know, to the moon and then see if they, you know, see if they land. It's it's very cool. But Jay, I, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us, man. This sure. is great. Uh, glad you enjoyed it. Uh, happy to happy to uh, you know share my work with with uh, your audience and and uh, um, you know look I'm honored that people value my work uh, in this area and others and uh, it's fun to talk about this stuff. Oh, it's great, man! And everyone, if you haven't checked out Jay's book, the Cooperstown Casebook, uh, I'm going to link it in the new description. Click on the link there. I highly suggest it. It's a great book, and we're all eagerly awaiting part two, Jay. <laughs> all right, thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot, Tim. All right, man. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. All right, everybody. We will speak to you next time. You know the sign off. Let's fucking go Mets. We'll see you next time. Later.